During today's episode, I'm going to be telling you about a new podcast I think you should check out. It's called Uneffing the Republic, but they don't say effing because those aren't the kind of days we're living through. So hear me out mid-show when I tell you more about it. And now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of Left podcast in which we shall learn about the climate-fueled disaster in Texas from almost every angle, from the strictly scientific to the purely political and all of the disaster capitalism in between. And I just want to point out something about this first clip you're going to hear today. This conversation was published on February 2nd of this year, before the winter weather hit Texas. And it's so on point that you'd be forgiven for thinking that they're responding to the disaster, but no, they're predicting it. So clips today are from Weathered, The David Pakman Show, All In With Chris Hayes, Democracy Now!, Warm Regards, Strange Days with Fernand Amandi, and For The Wild. Extreme cold is by far the leading cause of weather-related deaths in the U.S. each year. According to the CDC, around 1,300 people die each year from cold exposure. And that doesn't even take into account the over 1,800 traffic fatalities from snow and ice on the roadways. So even though snow is fun, winter weather is worth preparing for. For public health officials and transportation managers, a silver lining of a warming climate seemed to be milder winters and hopefully fewer deaths. But then something happened that surprised even the most astute scientists. You know, back in the 90s, the models that we used to try to you know, anticipate climate change showed a decrease in snowfall. And, you know, there was a very famous, even New York Times article, you know, the end of snow, how places like New York City <laughs> won't snow anymore. And in much of the world, that's exactly what happened. Snowpack in the West has been declining for decades. And nearly every glacier on Earth is receding. But then, in the winter of 2011, a very confusing trend began to take shape. The New Year started out with a historic storm, and in the northeastern U.S., the blizzards kept coming year after year. The most severe snowstorms are given a rating category from one through five. And looking at the frequency of these storms can give us an idea of climate trends. If you look at by decade since 1958, there were eight or less per decade. Over the most recent decade, there have been 27 of these disruptive snowstorms, so more than a tripling of any other previous decade. It will become the snowiest decade for the region. And within that decade, 2015 exceeded all predictions. It was Stephanie Pollack's first year as secretary of the Massachusetts Department of Transportation. We had 110 inches in a single season, which was the most we've ever had in Massachusetts. And it was also cold and it didn't warm up in between. And so it didn't melt and the piles just got higher and higher. 110 inches is more than double the previous average annual snowfall of 48 inches. And it's not just the Northeast. Winter storms are getting more severe in the Great Lakes, Northern Europe, and Central and East Asia. It was really hard to clear the sidewalks. And then the other big issue was our transit system to the point where we had to shut the system down. And so we had the people who we now call essential workers, but we didn't even have that word in 2015. You know, we were, we were trying to run buses for them, but we couldn't run the subways. And it took weeks to get back to the point where we could run the entire transit system. I think of the winter of 2015 as one indication that the climate is changing and we have to be prepared to live in a different world. If you're confused about this, that makes sense. It's why most people use terms like climate change or even global weirding rather than global warming. First, let's talk about what conditions you need to get a big snowstorm on the East Coast, like a nor'easter or a bomb cyclone. To get these big snowstorms here in the Northeastern U.S., you really need a confluence of events. You need a northerly flow to bring in the cold air. You need a southerly flow to bring in the moisture. You need strong high pressure blocking to the north to kind of lock it in along the coast. To put it in the simplest way possible, air around an area of low pressure spins counterclockwise and air around an area of high pressure spins clockwise. When these two meet along with enough cold air and moisture, they work together like gears to batter the east coast. But historically, these systems aren't extremely cold, just a few degrees below freezing. So you'd think that the two degree Fahrenheit rise in global temperatures would make more of these storms simply turn into rain. But that's not what we're seeing. Instead, there's been more snow and more outbreaks of cold air dipping down into the U.S. 
Dr. Cohen told us that a leading theory to explain the increase of cold air from the Arctic has to do with Arctic amplification. You might remember from our hurricane episode that the Arctic is warming much faster than the global average. Twice as fast, actually. That's because dark water and land surfaces absorb more of the sun's energy than white reflective ice. So as ice melts, more of these dark surfaces are exposed, which amplifies warming. And a quickly warming Arctic destabilizes the jet stream. The jet stream is a fast-moving, high-altitude wind current that forms where cold and warm air meet. The greater the temperature difference between these air masses, the stronger the jet stream becomes. But when that difference decreases, the jet stream can slow dramatically and dip further south. There's also a giant mass of swirling cold air high over the Arctic called the polar vortex. When everything's stable, we don't really notice it. But destabilize the jet stream and the polar vortex becomes wobbly like a top as its rotation slows. Instead of just sitting there spinning quietly on the top of the globe over the northern pole, now it starts to meander, starts to wander around. When you have these disruptions of the polar vortex, there's like a, it's a damn breaking and the cold air just rushes out into low, you know, to the lower latitudes and mid-latitudes. You get more amplified flow and more opportunities for snowstorms. None of this is new, but it's happening more frequently. And a growing number of scientists like Judah believe our warming climate is driving the process that provides Boston with enough cold air and moisture to set snowfall records. Boston is relatively well prepared to deal with harsh winters, and there are very few cold exposure deaths each year. But these polar vortex events can push cold and even snow into cities that aren't accustomed to it, which is actually more dangerous. And in January of 2014, the polar vortex was a major catalyst in the winter weather event that brought just 2.6 inches of snow to Atlanta, crippling one of the nation's largest cities for days. Children were stuck at school, interstates were clogged, thousands were stuck in their cars for hours. One mother even gave birth on the side of the highway. This was a true disaster, all because of the lack of timely preparation. But who could blame them, right? The South just isn't accustomed to dealing with winter weather, so it doesn't take much for it to become disruptive. To get some tips on how to stay safe in big snow events, we talked to Peter Murphy from the Oregon Department of Transportation. You can go from dry bare pavement to black ice in a matter of feet here. And if you're not prepared for that, you really can end up in a, in a sideways situation, and in some cases it can be fatal. And so consciousness of the direction the vehicle's going in, the conditions that we're driving in, is critical whether you're in New York City, whether you're in Atlanta, whether you're in San Diego or in Portland, Oregon. Be ready with the right equipment, the right gear. Just make sure your car is equipped with the right kind of tires. We, we like to know that you've done what you can to get a full tank of gas before you've headed out on the road. Make sure you have that extra stopping distance between yourself and the other car in front of you. If you're traveling during winter weather, make sure to have food and water in your car. It's also smart to prepare a kit that includes things like an ice scraper, a shovel, gloves, warm clothing, a blanket or sleeping bag, a flashlight, chains for your tires, and even a spare cell phone battery. But by and large, you know, we're a society that has learned how to stay in place. You know, COVID has taught us many things, that's one of them. So it, it is always in our power to not go someplace. You know, I'm in Atlanta, so we're seeing a lot more, um, you know, these extreme cold events dip further down to the south. Yeah. What can people do to best prepare themselves for extreme cold weather. So you're exactly right. As the climate changes, you know, what you thought was normal in Atlanta or Texas or, or Virginia is not going to be. It's critical that we're uh, prepared, the appropriate clothing, that you're being thoughtful about how you travel, that you're adequately hydrated and have access to food. So these are things that we, we need to be mindful of. The reason that they are so desperate to lie about this is that it's not just a matter of accountability for the fact that there are now millions without power and without heat in Texas during some of the coldest weather that they've seen in a long time. But their entire political ideology is tied up in government doesn't really need to do stuff, meaning infrastructure spending. Green energy is bad. Their entire ideology is crumbling. And so now they are telling the lie 
that windmills are the reason that what's going on in Texas is now taking place. And these people include Republican Governor Greg Abbott not telling the truth. It includes Tucker Carlson. It includes many others. The problem in Texas is not wind energy, and we're going to go through it today. And out of this tragedy, there is the opportunity to inform about what happens when you ignore climate science. So here's what's going on. Uh, More than two million people are or have been without power in Texas. Why? Extremely low temperatures and snow are affecting the Texas power grid. Now, Republicans are saying the problem is wind power. Here is Tucker Carlson making the case. Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson tonight. Happy Monday. Well, the Green New Deal has come, believe it or not, to the state of Texas. And we're here with the report. How's it working out so far? Well, the good news is all that alternative energy seems to have had a remarkable effect on the climate as intended. Last night, parts of Texas got to temperatures that we see in Alaska. In fact, they were the same as they were in Alaska. So global warming is no longer a pressing concern in Houston. We've solved that problem. The bad news is they don't have electricity. The windmills froze, so the power grid failed. Now, there are two big lies there. The first is that cold weather in Texas disproves so-called global warming. This is an old one. Climate science predicts not just warmer global average temperatures, but localized record highs and record lows, more erratic weather, what we would call unseasonable temperatures, high and low. So Tucker's first point is terrible. The fact that it's cold in Texas doesn't disprove anything. In fact, it's predicted by by climate science. But second, secondly, excuse me, Tucker says the reason for the blackouts is that the windmills froze. And this is so, so, so not true as a reason for what happened. And it's important to have the facts. Ice has forced some wind turbines to shut down. That's true. But wind power is only between 10 and 25 percent of the Texas energy mix at this time of year. The majority of the outages were caused by frozen instruments at natural gas, coal and nuclear plants that were not prepared for such cold weather, even though they could have been. And again, cold weather predicted by climate science models for decades, as meteorologist Quincy Vigel pointed out on Twitter. The power outages in Texas are in areas predominantly powered by natural gas. This was not caused by going green with some of Texas energy supply. But Republicans in Texas, desperate to blame someone else, are blaming wind power. Here is Republican Texas Governor Greg Abbott on Fox News last night saying what we're seeing in Texas right now is a preview of the Green New Deal. What good is it? So this shows how the Green New Deal would be a deadly deal for the United States of America. Texas is blessed with multiple sources of energy, such as uh, natural gas and oil uh, and nuclear, as as well as uh, solar and wind. Uh, But you saw from what Trace said, uh, and that is our wind and our solar got shut down, and and they were uh, collectively more than 10% of our power grid. And that thrust Texas into a situation where it was lacking power in a statewide basis uh, that was power that was spread out by that ERCOT organization that you were talking about. And then here is Fox and Friends this morning. But he said for the first time he's seeing a little bit of California now with what happened with the weather and the wind turbines. One of the things that the climate denial industry does is to sow doubt and to claim that there are controversies and unknowns where there are not. This is a really old playbook. It's described in the book Merchants of Doubt. They did it with smoking when they couldn't do it with smoking. They shifted to doing it with secondhand smoke. They did it with acid rain. They did it with the pesticide DDT. They did it with the hole in the ozone layer. They've been doing it with various elements of climate change, create doubt and manufacture a controversy where there isn't one. And I saw lots of people on online saying, I don't know, you know, there's just it's hard to know what the truth is about what's going on in Texas because each side has their view. We're going to have to wait. It's going to take time to figure out what the truth is about the role of green energy or not in what is taking place. No, we have the facts. Making it confusing is the playbook that they use. A wind is not even close to the main issue and wind is actually outperforming energy output expectations for this time of year in Texas, blaming the problems 
of frozen instruments at coal, natural gas and nuclear plants on wind turbine freezing shows two things. Number one, they're lying to you. And number two, these are problems that have been solved in other states, but Texas has refused to actually deal with it. If in Texas they had accepted climate science, they would know, number one, we should expect more erratic weather. And because that can mean really cold weather, it means that we should weather proof not only the wind turbines, but the uh, coal plant instruments, the gas plant instruments and the nuclear plant instruments. Many other states have done this. Listen, it gets cold in Wyoming and Montana. They have wind power as well. There are known solutions to this. We're going to look in the next segment at a report from a decade ago based on prior power outages in Texas saying, here's the things you have to do to protect yourselves from this in the future. Extremely cold weather affects natural gas and oil pipelines because it changes pressure. It affects instruments at nuclear plants. This is not uh, 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 this is not new information and this is not unique to Texas. Texas could have chosen to weatherproof not just wind, nuclear and nuclear uh, wind, nuclear and natural gas, which are mostly their sources of energy, but also the wind turbines. And Texas got crushed because its operators and its politicians chose not to be prepared for cold weather. That's the story. Yesterday evening, these pictures started to trickle out online, showing what certainly appear to be Ted Cruz and his family at the Houston airport taking an outbound flight to Cancun, Mexico. As millions of his constituents were freezing, huddling around fire pits fueled by anything they could get their hands on to burn. Social media sleuths matched the mask, ring, glasses, and the photos of those worn by Cruz. Noted the timing coincided with a 4.44 p.m. United flight. NBC News confirmed that Cruz's staff even called up Houston police officers to escort him through the airport as if they didn't have anything better to do. Cruz's wife, Heidi, reportedly sent text messages to friends saying their house was, all caps, freezing, which I imagine it was, and invited others to join them at the Ritz-Carlton in Cancun, where they had stayed many times. Amidst the ensuing firestorm, at 6 a.m. today, Cruz booked a new return flight from Cancun to Houston, a source telling NBC that he was initially booked on a flight returning on Saturday. Late this evening, the senator gave an impromptu interview in front of some shrubs at his home and came clean about the whole thing. We left yesterday. The plan had been to stay through the weekend with the family. Um, that, that, that was the plan. And, and, you know, I have to admit, it was... The last week's been tough on a lot of folks. Our girls, when they got the news that school was canceled this week, uh, they said, look, why don't, we t- why don't we take a trip? Let's, let's, let's go somewhere where it's not so cold. And, and Heidi and I... This had been a tough week, and this has been a tough year for kids, kids all across the state of Texas. And so we were trying to be good parents and said, okay, uh, we'll do it. And so we, we booked the flight. You know, I have to admit, I started having second thoughts almost the moment I sat down on the plane. Yeah, I can imagine you had some second thoughts. He's right. It has been hard on kids this year. At some level, you can almost understand that from Ted Cruz's perspective, what exactly is the big deal? I mean, Ted Cruz sees his job as basically being a guy who records a podcast, goes on Fox News and tweets snarky jokes. And increasingly, that's what being a conservative politician is. It's a form of performative trolling. And what is he supposed to do about a frozen pipeline anyway? I get that it's bad optics for Ted Cruz to take his family on vacation to Cancun right now. It even sounds bad. But let's be real about this for just one second. This is one of the stupidest aspects of our politics. Like, what exactly? It's not a real-time crisis that Ted Cruz, the senator from Texas, can do anything about. Did they expect Ted to go there with, like, a blowtorch and start defrosting all of the pipelines? Just an amazingly revealing statement from a conservative professional talker about what conservatives think governing is. Like, yeah, what's he supposed to do? Senators have constituent services. They have deep networks of powerful people they can liaison between different levels of government. They can marshal resources. They can highlight problems to federal officials. There are a million things a senator can do in the middle of disaster. If they don't know what to do, just go door to door and check on people in a mask. 
But none of that appears to interest a politician like Ted Cruz, who sees himself as basically Rush Limbaugh with the Senate office. And it's not just Ted Cruz. It's bigger than him. We saw the apotheosis of this with Donald Trump's management of covid where he turned the pandemic into basically a daily television show, doing none of the actual work to make the crisis better. In fact, making it worse at every turn, getting people killed. But it was simply another platform for the former president. In fact, at one point, he was actually thinking of starting a White House radio show. But he decided he didn't want to compete with Rush Limbaugh. Governing is not posting. It's not podcasting. It's not cable news anchoring. Believe me, both my parents worked as civil servants in city government, and I have a cable news show, and they had harder jobs than I do. What we've seen this week in Texas is a total failure of governance. But it's not just Ted Cruz. I mean, the way to climb the ladder in Republican politics, as Donald Trump showed, is not to be good at governing. That doesn't get you anywhere. It is to performatively troll the libs. And that is exactly what Republicans in Texas have been doing for much of the last decade, since the last time a crisis like this happened. Instead of preparing for this foreseeable catastrophe, they've been doing things like regulating who can use what bathroom, attacking Planned Parenthood, considering the death penalty for women who get abortions, removing discrimination protections so social workers can turn away LGBTQ disabled clients, protecting Chick-fil-A from religious discrimination, removing voting drop boxes, trying to make Texas a Second Amendment sanctuary state, and most recently, and perhaps most importantly, fighting with sports teams over playing the national anthem. None of that's going to help you when the power is out, and it's freezing, and there's no water. Then your performative owning of the libs looks really irrelevant and really dumb. I've been introducing you to a new show over the past few weeks, and they have given me quite a task. It's not that I need to say anything untrue about the show to try to convince you to listen to it. It's just that the truth sounds like it couldn't possibly be true. The show is called Unfucking the Republic, but if I left it at that, you might get the impression like it was a show hosted by a couple of angry punks who just want to rail against the machine and use gratuitous profanity for shock value. But that's not what the show is. If anything, it's closer to a dissertation given at a library full of leather-bound books and the faint whiff of pipe smoke in the air, with a perfectly appropriate amount of profanity used for punctuation and emphasis. So here I am, working my ass off, trying to convince you that a show with a name like Unfucking the Republic is worth your time and not beneath your cultured tastes. And then they go and release an episode like they did last week. Now, usually they release perfectly reasonable sounding episodes like The Prosperity Doctrine, Christ as Capitalist, exposing the sick intertwining of religion and capitalism, or How Trump Threw Away His Shot, explaining that if Trump had had the good sense just to start a high-profile war, then he could have easily been emperor for life. Or the beatification of Ronald Reagan. I mean, doesn't that just sound classy? But no, their latest episode is about Congress, and admittedly, that could get anyone going, so they just let loose with the title, Unfucking Congress and the Fucking Fuckers Who Fucked Us. Usually promoting good shows isn't this hard. You just say they're good and people believe you. But these guys, they're making me work for it. But I guess there's one upside to this pitch. There's only one way for you to know if I'm telling the truth. And that's to listen for yourself. You can find them by searching UNFTR. They are good friends of ours going back far beyond this new production of theirs. So check them out wherever you get your podcasts or by clicking the link in our show notes. We go to Houston, Texas, where we're joined by one of those Texans who went without electricity. Robert Bullard is a distinguished professor at Texas Southern University, known as the father of environmental justice. He's the author of many books, including The Wrong Complexion for Protection and Confronting Environmental Racism, Voices from the Grassroots. He's also the co-chair of the National Black Environmental Justice Network. Dr. Bullard, welcome back to Democracy Now! Can you describe your own 
own experience and the situation of people in Texas right now, this devastating state collapse, which seems traceable back to just they didn't want to be federally regulated and how it's disparately affected Texans. I'm uh, really glad that my power is back on and can uh, have this interview. Uh, I uh, was out uh, power for two days. The lights came back on uh, yesterday. Uh, the temperature had dropped uh, uh, outside. I think it was 11 degrees. Uh, inside my house was um, had gotten low, uh, low 40s, 41, something like that. Uh, very cold. Uh, we Texans are not used to that. And I've gotten uh, calls from some folks in Houston. Their uh, temps went in their homes went down um, uh, in the 30s. Uh, to to hear, hear uh, elected officials talking about uh, we are proud uh, to be uh, off the grid um, in terms of the U.S. and uh, Texans pride themselves as being uh, the Lone Star State. But when it comes to this. Uh, this cold spell and this uh, failure, uh, we are alone. We are the alone star state. Uh, the, the impact of this um, storm is more than just power outages and inconveniences for uh, those communities that historically have uh, been impacted by uh, energy insecurity energy poverty, having to pay a larger portion of their household income for, for energy. And this kind of disruption with uh, this cold spell and with people having to um, uh, raise the thermostat to keep warm uh, will mean after this power um, uh, outage has been restored, people are going to have high um, uh, bills, utility bills, and some won't be able to pay, and some will um, get shutoffs. That's the that's the inequity that's piled on top of the inequity, and we see this happening all across um, uh, the city as well as the state. And we're also dealing with the era of COVID. Uh, no power, no lights, no water. Uh, there's no way for you to boil water if you can't uh, if you don't have electricity. And there's no way to wash your hands and 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 deal with COVID if you don't have water. So it's a pandemic. Uh, it's a, a catastrophe piled and converging, which is uh, technically a mess. You know, talking about the issue of environmental justice, we were in Houston and interviewed you, Dr. Bullard, uh, after one of the major hurricanes. And we were looking at the frontline communities who are so hard hit by these hurricanes, disparately affected, um, uh, much worse than other communities. Um, then, as you said, you have COVID. You have some heating centers if people are lucky enough to get yeah. into one. Um, because the electricity is out in so many places. But I don't know if it's lucky, because they're packed in like sardines when we're dealing with the pandemic. Um, and then you have this issue of renewable energy. It looks like Governor uh, Abbott went on Fox, on Hannity, to say this is about the Green New Deal, which hasn't even been passed yet. Um, but then locally, knowing no one would buy it uh, in the Petro Metro, where you live in Houston or anywhere else <laughs> yeah. in Texas, uh, he uh, walked it back. But that got out there into the right wing blogosphere and uh, Twitter sphere. And that's what they are blaming when we're talking about something like 10 percent wind turbines when they were supposed to be updated and they weren't. But so yeah. much more than the vast majority of the energy sources are not renewable. Can you talk about why you see this as an environmental justice issue? And you're so famous for saying depends on who's at the table in deciding how we move forward. You have a complete failed state right now. How do the right people get at the table? Well, it's important that um, we take uh, a comprehensive view of what is happening here on the ground. Uh, the very communities that uh, were hit uh, especially hard during Harvey and, and the flooding 
And as you map that, you can see it's the same communities um, overlaid with, that would hit the hardest black and brown communities uh, by COVID. If you overlay the, the power outages and the rolling uh, uh, blackouts, et cetera, and you start to look at the, the releases from uh, these refineries and plants uh, uh, because of um, unstable uh, power and the releases, over 300,000 uh, pounds of pollution was released uh, during this, you know, uh, I guess three days or so, um, that, that, that created lots of problems in terms of, of potential health impacts, uh, releasing of benzene, which is a known carcinogen. So, so we're talking about environmental, we're talking about health, we're talking about energy, uh, we're talking about uh, issues related to um, access to uh, food and, and health care. All those things are rolled up in one. And, and when we talk about a solution, that means that we need to have uh, the right people at the table when decisions are being made as to how we come out of this um, this um, catastrophe with a solid plan and not uh, assume that, well, we can just paste it over and say we can uh, go on as business as usual and not expect to have something like this to reoccur. Lessons unlearned. You know, um, uh, we had a major uh, power outage, uh, I think it was 2011 or so, and there were no lessons learned from that. There was no lessons that we could have taken forward and, 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 and strengthen our system, our grid, and to talk about building something that is, um, is solid, sustainable, and resilient for everybody. Uh, now, there are some people that have not missed a beat. Uh, if you have a generator that's pumping in your backyard, or if you've, you know, have, have a credit card and can drive to a hotel and, and wait it out, uh, your hurt and pain may be less than those who, are, who feel the hurt and pain first, worst, and longest. So we have to come through this with more people in those rooms in Austin uh, talking about solutions and not the same people who created the problem. We can't expect them to solve the problem. Naomi, welcome back to Democracy Now! Um, talk about the Republican leadership of Texas blaming this catastrophe on what hasn't even happened yet, and that is the Green New Deal. Yeah, it's just been a symphony of voices uh, from the Republican Party pointing the finger at something that doesn't actually exist anywhere, really, but on paper, certainly doesn't exist in Texas. Texas is about as far from a Green New Deal as you can possibly get, seeing as a Green New Deal is a plan to bring together the need to get off fossil fuels in the next decade to radically decarbonize our energy system. And as we know, fossil fuels are still king in Texas. It's a plan to marry that uh, huge infrastructure investment in the next green economy with a plan to battle poverty, to create huge numbers of good union green jobs, uh, to take care of people. It's a, it's a plan to have universal public health care and child care and a jobs guarantee. So it's all the things that are not happening in Texas because there isn't just um, this extreme weather, which many scientists believe are linked to our warming planet. Um, you, you know, you can't link one storm with climate change, but, uh, but the patterns are very clear and this should be a wake-up call. But Texas is also suffering a pandemic of poverty, of exclusion, of racial injustice. Uh, it certainly doesn't have a Green New Deal. And we've heard this messaging, I think, because of panic, frankly, um, because the Green New Deal is a plan that could solve so many of Texas's problems and the problems across the country. And Republicans have absolutely nothing to offer except for more deregulation, more privatization, more austerity. And so they have been frantically seeking to deflect from the real causes of this crisis, which is an intersection of extreme weather of the kind that we are seeing more of because of climate change, intersecting with a deregulated fossil fuel 
uh, based energy system. Um, and that is the truly catastrophic uh, uh, intersection. And layered on that, you have all of the injustices and inequalities that mean that this doesn't impact everybody equally by any means. It's an extremely um, uh, racially unjust catastrophe, as every catastrophe in the United States is. And Naomi, could you talk a little bit about uh, the the it's it's basically a right wing extremism when it comes to energy policy that's been practiced in Texas. The origins uh, of the deregulation movement that uh, Texas pioneered and also the other wrinkle sure. in this is this notorious independent streak that Texas not only wants the United States to be energy independent, the state of Texas wants to be independent from the rest of the U.S. electrical grid so that other states couldn't come to its to its uh, support uh, in this time of crisis. Sure. Um, you know, in, in headlines, I heard you uh, um, playing a clip of, of uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's trip to Texas and the fact that she raised, helped raise, um, I believe, $5 million uh, uh, to this point. And, you know, she was been, she's been very clear that she doesn't believe that, that poverty, that, that charity is um, the solution to these systemic failures, and of course, she is probably the person who's most closely associated with the calls for a Green New Deal in government. Um, but I think that what she's trying to show um, with this action is that government should be there to take care of people, that we should have each other's backs, particularly in a crisis. The ideology that has governed Texas now for at least four decades is an ideology, I think, best uh, um, encapsulated by, by Ronald Reagan's famous phrase, uh, the nine most dangerous words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. And, I, you know, I, I think it is worth pausing over that because, you know, those that sort of glib slogan that people should be afraid of a government that's there to help. When you have a catastrophe like the one that is unfolding in Texas, but more broadly, the pandemic everywhere, it's really quite chilling because people need a government that is there to help. Um, and and so, you know, in Texas, they just took this to the extreme. And so it goes back further uh, um, than than the 1990s. But a series of fateful decisions were made in the late 1990s when Enron blast from the past and now defunct. But the scandal plagued energy company uh, headed by the late Ken Lay led this successful push under then-Governor George W. Bush to radically deregulate Texas's electricity sector. And they won, is the bottom line. And as a result, decisions about the generation and distribution of power were stripped from regulators in Texas and handed over to private energy companies on the basis of this logic that what's good for, uh, what's good for industry will be good for everyone else, prices will be lower, there'll be maximum competition. So you have all of these private players competing with each other. And as you said, Juan, um, they are, quote unquote, independent from the rest of the grid. You know, I see some really interesting parallels with what has happened with COVID. Because when you hand over essential functions of the state to private companies, whether they're healthcare companies or whether they're energy companies, um, what they seek to do is make maximum profits and you do that through, quote unquote, efficiency. Now, what does efficiency mean in practice? It means you take out all the slack in the system because you're wringing out profits, maximum profits at every turn. So when it comes to something like healthcare or elder care, that means you don't want to have a single empty hospital bed or a single empty bed in an elder care facility because that's an inefficiency. But then if you have a shock, like a pandemic, you have no slack in the system to absorb that shock and you have disaster, right? What we've seen in Texas is something very similar with energy, right? There's no slack in the system. There's no built-in redundancies because if you're, if you're plugged into the, to the national grid, if you have a shock in your state or in one location, then energy from somewhere else that is not having a shock is able to come in and cover for you. Um, in Texas, they, they took out all of those redundancies and so then you have a weather shock that that puts stress on the system, knocks out capacity. And also there's a surge in demand because it's freezing and everybody wants more energy. And it just blows the whole system out in the same way that the pandemic blew out 
any capacity uh, in, in the healthcare system. So unsurprisingly, these private companies prioritize short-term profit over costly investments in maintaining the grid, in winterizing the grid for an extreme event. They took out all the built-in redundancies. And today, Texans are at the mercy of regulation allergic politicians who failed to require that energy companies plan for shocks uh, like the one they're experiencing right now and like the ones, frankly, we are going to see more and more of because of our destabilized climate. One of my favorite television shows is The Expanse, which just ended its fifth season. It's based on a series of novels by James Corey about a near-future struggle between a beleaguered but habitable Earth, a militant Mars still harboring dreams of terraforming, and the blue-collar second-class citizens of the far-off asteroid belt, upon whom both Earth and Mars rely for water and metals. There's so much to love about this show, from its phenomenal and diverse cast to the constant build-up of suspense, but one of my favorite things is sort of tucked away in the background— The show is set around the year 2350, further from today than we are from the Industrial Revolution. But it's a world that, for all its technological achievements, is one where the impacts of climate change are very much a reality. Humans have spread to every corner of our solar system, but on Earth, the view of the eastern seaboard at night shows a vastly retracted coastline, and shots of New York show the Statue of Liberty surrounded by barriers keeping the ocean from swallowing the city. There's something about how these kinds of details are just quietly there, matter-of-fact, unremarked, that's such a gut punch for me. Rising sea levels and tensions over limited resources are presented as a simple reality, one that technology has not been able to cope with so far. This is no Star Trek universe, where you can order anything you want from a replicator. Coffee is rare, and water is more precious than gold. This is a world where climate change is a reality, And people have had to cope, from adjusting our infrastructure to migrating off the planet to seek new lives fraught with uncertainty, danger, and hope. The Expanse is a fictional imagining, just one possible climate future out of many. But to me, it illustrates the ways in which, even with our best efforts, we will need to live with some impacts of climate change. I don't mean to be pessimistic— we can still avoid the worst impacts if we act swiftly and decisively. The story of our climate future is not yet written. We may not need to build seawalls around the Statue of Liberty in the end. But we do know that prevention can't be our only strategy. We need to think beyond the binaries of mitigation and adaptation. Mitigation focuses on the root causes of climate change. It's all the things we do to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions— Mitigation strategies can be big or small. Think things like switching to an electric car, eating less beef, developing renewable energy, or even restoring natural habitats like forests or grasslands to store more carbon. Whatever the pathway, the ultimate goal of mitigation is to minimize the amount of warming we have to deal with in the first place. And this is historically where the vast majority of our climate actions have focused on. Of course, we know that those efforts haven't been enough, and people are already living with the impacts of climate change, from more frequent floods, to disruptions to our food systems, to heat waves, or the expansion of disease vectors like ticks or mosquitoes. That's why we also need adaptation. Those are the things that minimize the impacts of climate change. Adaptation includes things like moving an electrical substation out of a flood zone, planting trees or green walls in cities to minimize heat waves, or even moving entire communities out of high-risk coastal zones. For years, adaptation was seen as something of a bad word in the climate community. A lot of folks thought adaptation implied that we should just live with the impacts of climate change, either by giving up and living with it, or just sort of innovating our way around the problem, when we should be focusing on preventing the impacts in the first place through mitigation. But in recent years, it's become obvious that the impacts of climate change are already here, We don't have the option of a future where we won't need to adapt to climate change. In many communities, we've already fallen behind, scrambling to do the work that should have been started decades ago. But we don't have to grope in the dark here. 
This season, we've shown a spotlight on the large, diverse community working to understand Earth's climate system, forecasting future scenarios with sophisticated models, or identifying the impacts of warming on people and ecosystems. The adaptation planning community takes all of that diverse data and asks, what should we do next? Because there's no one-size-fits-all approach to climate adaptation. Every community faces its own unique risks. Think about where you were born. Did you live near water? Or did your water come from somewhere else far away? Were you by the ocean? Did you ever worry about tornadoes, ice storms, or hurricanes? Did your family work the land, or travel, or spend time outside for their jobs? Now think about where you live today. What's the difference from where you grew up? Are the climate threats the same? What's changed since you were a child? What worries do you carry with you about climate change in your own community? What impacts are you already noticing on your own doorstep? Chances are, there are adaptation planners grappling with exactly these kinds of questions right now. And while they're obviously important, this work has received a lot less funding, and adaptation has largely been sidelined in the climate conversation. We've spent a lot of time talking about why climate change is happening and what the impacts are. Adaptation planners take the where, when, and how of climate impacts and find ways to reduce the risks and costs of those impacts to cities and towns. They're the climate risk managers, helping communities to become more resilient so that we can bounce back from acute shocks like severe hurricanes or heat waves while addressing the chronic stresses that undermine resilience, like poor infrastructure or poverty. In other words, climate adaptation isn't about giving up or giving in. It's about taking care of one another while we do the critical work of mitigation. If your house is on fire, you don't just sit on the couch waiting for the firefighters to put out the blaze. You grab the baby photos and your go bag, and you get to safety so you can assess and rebuild. We've just heard clips today, starting with Weathered nailing the prediction on the weird weather hitting the South. The David Pakman Show debunked the nonsense talking points coming out of right-wing media and politicians. Chris Hayes explained the core of conservatism through the lens of Ted Cruz. Democracy Now! first spoke with the father of environmental justice about his experience in the failed state of Texas, and then spoke to Naomi Klein about deadly deregulation. Then Warm Regards laid out an argument for embracing climate adaptation in addition to climate mitigation. That's what everyone heard, but members also heard bonus clips from Strange Days with Fernand Amandi discussing more angles of adaptation, how to talk to your kids about the climate, and the movement of climate refugees. Then For the Wild took aim at the corporate banks who act as the financial backers of polluting companies driving climate change. For non-members, those bonus clips are linked in the show notes and are part of the transcript for today's episode, so you can still find them if you want to make the effort. But to hear that and all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly into your podcast feed, sign up to support the show at bestoftheleft.com support, or request a financial hardship membership because we don't make a lack of funds a barrier to hearing more information. Every request is granted, no questions asked. And now... We'll hear from you. Hello, Jay. This is V from Central New York. Episode 1398 brought back to mind some clips you posted all the way back in 2008. I believe it was the summer and early autumn, the run-up to the presidential election that year. Indeed, it was those very few clips and the pre-election show that you published, which, if I could be very truthful for a moment, really hooked me to your podcast and brought me back week after week after week. Now, that statement that I just made, can I be truthful? For a moment, 
comes out of the black church. Uh, it is not meant to uh, suggest that I'm not being truthful most of the time. It is meant to suggest that I am speaking to a deeper reality um, within myself that I'm bringing forward. But I digress. I was reminded of those clips because recently I've been listening to uh, Frank Schaefer Jr., S-C-H-A-F-F-E-R, um, the son of a prominent evangelical movementarian who helped to literally build the evangelical power base that we are now dealing with today as kind of a pseudo-fascist movement within the United States. At that time, 2008, you posted several clips about the fragmentation that was starting to occur within the evangelical movement, specifically the younger evangelists who wanted to concentrate more on problems that were afflicting their generation and the environment. And how one of their prominent spokespersons at the time either paid a compliment to Barack Obama or maybe even talked about supporting Barack Obama. I forget, it's been that long. But he was literally kicked out of the movement because of his comment, which was seen as praiseworthy to one Barack Obama. This is quite important because Mr. Schaefer has posted several videos on his YouTube channel, which I think your audience would find interesting, including one which he suggests what happened on the 6th is the beginning of a very, very long process that he likens to a second civil war. We are already seeing some signs that this may not be true, but I'm listening to Mr. Schaefer and I am asking that your listeners at least give him an ear, give him a listen, and use their own judgment as to what they believe about the information which he provides. Um, second, 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 I've recently been reading a book or listening to it while I'm at work, as I often do, called Rule, R-U-L-E, and Ruin, R-U-I-N, which provides a very detailed and fascinating and concise, if you can believe that, but it is very detailed and fascinating, accounting of the Republican Party's movement from a big tent party in the 1950s with Eisenhower to the right-wing party that we are now dealing with today. The correlations, especially from the Goldwater era, the 1960s era to today, really, really need to be studied. And indeed, the conversations that we are witnessing happen with former Bush administration officials and even some Trump administration officials to break up the party is very reminiscent to something that was being discussed in the 1960s. Again, I would encourage your listeners to go and if not listen to the book, then to read the book. It is very instructive to what we are experiencing today. As always, I am always looking forward to your next episode. And again, I want to thank you and um, the benefactor who provided me with a gifted yearly subscription. I will repay it someday. Thank you again, Jay. Peace. Thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line or wrote in their messages to be played as voicemails. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can record a message at 202-999-3991 or write me a message to j at bestofleft.com. First, just a quick reminder that we are experimenting with a little game where the task is to write wildly misleading yet true headlines about real stories. The point is to help you recognize them in the real world by learning the mechanics of how they work. The three stories I'd suggested for fake headline writing are these. U.S. officially joins the Paris Climate Accord. That was the first. Number two, South Carolina governor signs bill banning abortion of fetus after heartbeat is detected. And the third, Biden approves major disaster declaration for Texas. 
And we've gotten some great entries already, but I'm going to let it run a little more so you have a few more days to get yours in if you want to play. Dave from Olympia has submitted enough headlines for about a dozen contestants. So word to the wise, if we ever turn this into a team sport, you're going to want Dave on your team. As I said, we'll have a longer discussion about these later on, but I wanted to give you just this one from Dave that's perfectly fitting for today's topic and is on the story about Biden approving a disaster declaration in Texas. And I'm sharing it because it made me laugh out loud. Adding insult to injury, after unprecedented winter storm, Biden calls the state of Texas, quote, a disaster. So nice work, Dave. Wildly misleading. Totally true. That is the art of it. So if you want to get in on the fun, send me your headlines ASAP. But that's not even what I wanted to talk about today. I wanted to use V's voicemail as an excuse to jump to a discussion on cancel culture since he referenced the like decade old or more case of an evangelical getting kicked out of the movement for having said something slightly nice about Barack Obama. Now, I've mostly been ignoring the concept of cancel culture entirely because it just seemed to me like mostly baseless right-wing garbage, which is true, but it wasn't until I read this article that I really had it clarified for me. And it's such a good article that I thought I would try and experiment and just have the robot voice read most of it to you. I think I think it does a good enough job that it's not irritating. You can let me know if this is the worst thing I've ever done and to beg me to never do it again. But the content of the article is gold, I promise. So have a listen. Right-wing media helped usher in the age of cancel culture, but now pretend it's an invention of the left. From Media Matters by Parker Malloy. From Roger Ailes to Andrew Breitbart to James O'Keefe to Donald Trump, right-wing media has been built on cancel culture for decades. In an op-ed plastered across Monday's New York Post front page, Senator Josh Hawley calls for an end to the, quote, muzzling of America. Hawley's essay makes a now familiar argument against so-called cancel culture, which naturally came for him all because he tried to invalidate the votes of millions of Americans and maybe, sorta, kinda helped incite a deadly mob to attack the U.S. Capitol. Who among us hasn't had a brush with insurrection at one point or another? That same morning, former White House Press Secretary Sarah Sanders announced her bid to become the next governor of Arkansas. In her announcement, she played on the same theme as Holly, saying, I took on the media, the radical left, and their cancel culture, and I won. As governor, I will be your voice and never let them silence you, unquote. Cancel culture, like identity politics and political correctness, is an ill-defined concept that has been weaponized to shut down criticism of conservatives. Are Holly, Sanders, and the many other politicians and people in conservative media who regularly denounce cancel culture actually the steadfast supporters of radical free speech they make themselves out to be? No, of course not. They're mostly just raging hypocrites. In Holly's piece for The Post, he denounced what he called censorship coming from companies, quoting, but the left and the corporations are challenging all of this now. Your conservative social platform isn't worth much when Amazon can shut it down. Your vote may still be yours, but if your party is denied the means to effectively organize by corporate monopolies, it's not going to win. Your church, well, you can still attend for now, but go to the wrong church and you may not have a job in a few years. Unquote. Just as right-wing media have helped Republicans play up their opposition to identity politics while ignoring the role white and Christian identities play in conservative coalitions, and just as they denounce the concept of political correctness while promoting revisionist and sanitized versions of American history, the fight against cancel culture is another bundle of hypocrisy wrapped in the bow of a new buzzword. The successful branding of cancel culture as the invention of the left is both sad and remarkable, as well as factually incorrect. What was the purpose of the House Un-American Activities Committee or of the Army McCarthy hearings if not to root out and cancel communists? And what of the so-called lavender scare purge of gay employees within the federal government? The idea that cancel culture is new or limited to any particular political ideology is patently false. Right-wing media try to portray this move as being driven primarily by the left, but just look at this admittedly incomplete List of conservative cancellation targets, Acorn, The Beatles, TV host Samantha Bee, Campbell's Soup, The Chicks, then known as the Dixie Chicks, New York Times reporter Sopin Deb, France, Gillette Razors, comedian Kathy Griffin, Guinness, director James Gunn, Hallmark, CNN commentator Mark Lamont Hill, 
The Hunt, Tech Reporter Sarah Jang, then NFL Quarterback Colin Kepernick, Kellogg's, Keurig, KitKat, Match.com, Mexico, The Muppets, The New York Times, Nike, Pepsi, Rachel Ray and Dunkin' Donuts, left-leaning college professors, a series of words that include science-based and evidence-based, progressive commentator Sam Cedar, former Department of Agriculture employee Shirley Sherrod, Starbucks, Target, transgender people, Washington Post reporter Dave Weigel on more than one occasion, and even the White House Easter egg roll. To this, I, I just want to interject with my own personal run-in with when conservatives canceled France. I actually worked at a coffee shop at the height of the Freedom Fries mania, and people would come in on French Roast Fridays, look at today's brews, get a disgusted look on their face, and ask, isn't there any coffee that isn't French? And... You know, if you're not a coffee snob and you don't know this, don't worry about it. It's not the sort of thing that everyone needs to know, but I did have to explain several times that French roast coffee doesn't come from France because all coffee comes from the tropics where coffee grows and that French roast is just a style of roast. And even that usually wasn't enough to placate them. Part of the reason the idea of cancel culture may seem like it comes more from the left than from the right is that conservative media outlets simply will not stop talking about it. The New York Post has an extensive list of stories tagged cancel culture. The same is true of Breitbart, The Daily Caller, and The Daily Wire. Cancel culture isn't real, but probably not for the reason you think. In short, the world is far more complicated than can be contained in a two-word catchphrase. Conservatives have tried to stretch the meaning of cancel culture to include pretty much everything. Was it cancel culture for Amazon to cut ties with Parler after Parler refused to comply with requests to remove certain content? If anything, it seems more oppressive to suggest that people or companies should be compelled to continue working with a company that hosts potentially illegal content. Is it cancel culture to express disappointment when a popular author comes out against legal protections for a marginalized group? And if it is, how is it not also cancel culture for the author to advocate for their position in the first place, as, after all, they are trying to curtail someone else's freedoms? There's a nuanced discussion to be had about who gets held accountable for their speech and actions, who doesn't, and why. Unfortunately, we're now at a point where Representative Matt Gates is calling the impeachment of Trump over his role in inciting violence at the Capitol on January 6th, quote, the zenith of cancel culture. That probably does not bode well for anybody hoping for nuance. Gates, who is a frequent Fox News guest, epitomizes the fundamental unseriousness that is cancel culture. Saying Sean Hannity's show shouldn't be on TV. Cancel culture. Expressing disappointment that someone would endorse an anti-Muslim conspiracy theorist for Congress. Cancel culture. Someone saying they're not going to buy a certain brand of beans. Cancel culture. An imaginary war on the TV show Paw Patrol. Cancel culture. It's okay to believe that social or professional consequences for things said or done are either too harsh or not harsh enough. And it's okay to be concerned about the outsized power tech companies like Facebook or Twitter have in the world. But using the framing of cancel culture to make these points will always come off as lazy and cowardly. Instead of chalking something up to cancel culture, people should simply say what it is that they mean. Gates should just say that he doesn't believe Trump should be impeached for his role in the insurrection. And he should just say that he supported right-wing conspiracy theorist Laura Loomer despite her views about Muslims. If Hawley and his right-wing media allies were being honest, they would just come right out and defend the incitement of mob violence rather than hiding behind the cancel culture boogeyman. Until then, it'll be hard to hear the words cancel culture without thinking of cowardly hypocrisy. So I found that clarifying. I hope you did too, especially the contextualizing of why when a phrase means everything, it comes to mean nothing, and we are left with no choice but to demand that people just say what they actually mean, rather than using a shorthand phrase that is literally meaningless because there is nothing resembling an agreed-upon definition of it. Um, we had a really good discussion on the Members Bonus Show last week that was mostly about racism and classism, but it sort of skirted around the edges of cancel culture. So I, I'm thinking that in our next bonus episode, just a small piece of it, I'll, I'll tell the story of one of the latest right-wing cancel culture freakouts over the very calm and nuanced way that English teachers are being encouraged to rethink and discuss with their students 
Dr. Seuss. So you're not going to want to miss that. Sign up for a membership to support the show and get that bonus episode and all of our bonus content in your feed when it comes out. Keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991 or by emailing me to j at bestofleft.com. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Dan, and Ken, for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic design, webmastering, and so forth. And thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestofleft.com support, as that is absolutely how the program survives. And now everyone can earn rewards and support the show just by telling everyone you know about it using our Referomatic system at bestofleft.com refer. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of Left podcast coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestofleft.com. Thank you.